You know, I, I kind of just do what I love now, and I, I research food, I cook food, I film it, and I and I put it online, and and it usually gets received well. Um, so I, I think it's just it's so different from where I thought my life and career would go. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The internet has changed many things, and when it comes to food, social media has opened the kitchen door using a new lens on food, and with some, by luck, good fortune, or a clever approach, it's changed their lives. Andy Herndon is a professional chef and better known these days as Andy Cooks. Andy, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, Huck. How are you? I'm good. You've spent the vast majority of uh, your career, like many chefs, slaving away in commercial kitchens, and yep. um, now we're seeing your face everywhere. What's what's the shift been like? Um, it's been uh, life changing, to be honest, um, but in, in a positive way. It's been a pretty interesting period of time and very challenging for many. Um, but you, you're sort of saying the shift has been very positive for you. When when did that shift change? And tell us a bit about it. Yeah, well, it was like for most people when COVID um, hit. Uh, I was living and working in Melbourne and, and lost my job pretty quickly. Um, so we, we kind of packed up and, and drove north to the Sunshine Coast where my partner's from. And I, and I kind of sat around for six months licking my wounds uh, and, and then realised that um, we just needed to get on. And uh, I thought I'd give this content thing a crack. And it's, it's turned out pretty well. It was, did, did you ever think that it would go to where it's gone? Like, obviously, it was a pretty scary time and a time to change new things. But what led you down that path? Uh, I think I've always been a big consumer of content. Um, and I was always, you know, listen to lots of podcasts, always. You know, I was always on Instagram, always watching YouTube. Uh, and, and I kind of saw, you know, a few people really making, uh, you know, decent careers out of it in the US and Europe. And, and I thought that that's where I'd want to want to head. It's, it's an interesting change. How much has your cooking changed from that sort of professional chef to being bar, bar in front of a camera? Oh, it's, it's, it's massively, um, and I think from the angle I, I chose to choose with my content was through the eye of a professional chef who's learning how to be a, a good home cook because um, they're really different. They are, they're very different mediums of cooking. Um, so I, I kind of made an active decision to, to, to show up warts and all and show where I made mistakes and, and where I had some wins. Um, and um, But yeah, but being stuck and locked into my apartment in Melbourne at the start and uh, I hadn't actually cooked at home much my whole life like most chefs. I, I never really cooked at home. So all of a sudden trying to figure out how to use a domestic kitchen, um, it, was, it was a pretty funny pretty funny exercise do you have any stories of that shift you know like sh- shifting from thinking of being a chef and cooking that way in a restaurant from lots of people to that you know in the home sort of cooking was it were there some bumps along the road you can tell us about yeah absolutely i mean the, the most obvious one is just like the amount that i was cooking <laughs> you know like I, I kept cooking for me and caitlin my partner and there'd just be this ridiculous amount of food um and then the other uh, the, the other issues I kept coming up with was just the the lack of uh, heat and you know in my 
you know, and my domestic appliances. So just trying to kind of get my head around, wrap around, wrap my head around that was pretty challenging. Well, I want to explore your cooking and sort of how your life has changed in greater detail a bit later on. But you spent the majority of your career as a professional chef. Take us back to when you were young. Where did you grow up and what sort of role did food play for you and your family? Yes, yeah, so I was born in Wellington, uh, and my all my family on my mother's side were, were poultry farmers in New Zealand. Um, so food was always, um, you know, in the centre of the table, and we ate together as a family. Uh, and I was exposed to to how food was produced at a very young age. So you know, I, I was you know like most kind of um, people growing up in city. I had the exposure of actually going to. To, to big farms and, and understanding how the food kind of how the food got to the plate. So, um, you know, that was a pretty formidable part of my life, you know, in hindsight. And then I, I always wanted to be a chef. That was my only ever, you know, when I was a kid, anyone ever asked me what I wanted to do, it was always to be a chef. So as soon as I could leave school, um, I, I left school and went to chef's college in Auckland, um, which was, you know, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> you know, I think food back in in the early 2000s in New Zealand and probably likewise Australia wasn't um, definitely what it, what, what, it, what it is now. Um, and, um, and, and like most people of that generation, I couldn't wait to get out of New Zealand. So um, as soon as I could, I got to London. And, and that's where I kind of say that I really learned how to cook. You know, I'm sure there was good restaurants in this part of the world at that time, but they were very far and few between. And, and London's food scene was really kind of popping off at that point. So, um, Before we talk about London, take us back to Auckland. You were young when you moved away from Wellington to Auckland and, and um, started your career. What, what was it like for you be working in, in the commercial kitchen and being so young? Yeah, I mean, uh, we moved to Auckland when I was about 10 um, as a family, and then uh, I left school at 16 and, and went straight into to chef school. And I, and I think the biggest learning for me at that point was learning how to manage my own time and learning how to have autonomy, I guess. 16 um, is pretty young to be um, set free in the world. But you know, I, I managed through it. I think growing up on the farm, I had a pretty good work ethic. Um so I, I knew how to work hard, and I knew how to, you know, hustle. Uh, and then, and then I kind of started in the Auckland uh, cafe cafe scene straight out of Chef's College, um, which taught me how to work fast. Uh, and, and you kind of talk about the cafe scenes to people uh, outside of this part of the world, and they don't quite understand how how serious Kiwis and Aussies take their breakfasts. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it taught me how to poach an egg and, and how to be really quick. Yeah. So T- take us to to London. Um, were you shocked at sort of how different it was to what you were used to? Yeah, I, I, I probably was. I was probably shocked at the 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 workload or the amount of hours that that we were working. Um, and it was it was just a very different environment. You know, the kitchens were pretty aggressive. Uh, they, you know, were very driven. Um, luckily, I kind of, re- you know, respond well to that type of pressure, but it's certainly not for everyone. Um, and it's, you know, it's also changing now, which is good. Um, but it was a shock to the system to kind of be, you know, told pretty quickly and abruptly that you've made a mistake. And, you know, far... Uh, Fewer and more aggressive words. <laughs> in, in your time in London, what, what were the sort of really important people and venues that helped build your career? 
So when, when I first got to London, I went and worked for a, a chef by the name of Tom Atkins, uh, and at his restaurant Tom's Kitchen in Chelsea, and that was a very uh, I I didn't really know where I'd landed, um, but it was a very you know good restaurant. Um, Tom was a pretty formidable chef, pretty well known um, for a lot of good things and, and um, also known to be pretty tough. Um, so I think having that restaurant on my CV really opened up a lot of doors from there. Um, so so I did you know a year and a half with Tom uh, and then I kind of went to a few other spots, uh, including um, a restaurant called E&O in Notting Hill. And then when I was in that restaurant group, I got my first head chef job at like 24, which was, you know, really, really young. Um, and that was at a restaurant called the Great Eastern Dining Room in Shoreditch. Uh, and um, I think that was another really, um, you know, a big a big leap in my career and probably actually for the, for the wrong way. I think I got given way too much responsibility to a younger age and probably wasn't ready for that role. Um but it's good. It kind of, I think it kind of, you know, chewed me up and spat me out and it, and it kind of made me realize, you know, what it was to be a head chef wasn't just um, the glorified stuff that you see. There's, you know, there's a lot to it. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden you're having to actually manage people and manage a team. And um, at the end of the day, I think running kitchens is actually, um, you know, it's it's 10% creative and 90% managing people. So, um Looking back at the, sh- the head chef that you were the- then and to now, like how how did you cope with that sort of shift of not just creating dishes but managing people? Was are you vastly different? Yeah, I, I, and I changed pretty quickly. I, I went into that head chef role and imitated uh, management behaviour that I'd witnessed my whole career or my career in London, um, and it, it actually, you know, it took me a few years to realise that that's actually not my personality and how I manage people, and it's actually pretty unproductive in most cases um so so i learned that the hard way um but it you know it kind of grew me as a person because it it forced me to realize you know when you're standing at at a service and half the brigade's not showing up and you're going scratching your head wondering why and then you look back and you go well you you know you weren't treating people right um it's a tough lesson to learn but um but probably pretty important so I, i was pretty glad to um to kind of figure out who I was as a person at a, at a relatively young age, and it was through making a lot of mistakes pretty early. So, You mentioned it near the top of the show about how London was so important for you uh, in regards to building your career and becoming a, a chef. Um, what did you take from your time in London? What was it that you learned from that experience? Uh, I think the... The key thing, I, you know, I always say I learned how to cook in London and I think that's, you know, that's really true and it's just learning those fundamental, um, you know, French techniques, um, how to actually, you know, manage mise en place, how to, how to kind of, you know, run a kitchen, I guess, um, as opposed to, um, you know, the cafe work and stuff that I'd done in New Zealand before. It was very much day-to-day, you show up, you kind of, get the kitchen open and, and you, you punch out some food and you go home whereas it was far more planning and um so yeah i think london you know in simplest terms really taught me how to cook and how to how to be a professional what brought you back to this um side of the planet i was, I was in london for seven years uh and london i have a huge place in my heart for that city but um it's very tough you know it's it's dark and cold 
Uh, and unless you're kind of uh, earning decent money, I think it's a hard city to live in. Um, and shifts don't earn decent money, so <laughs> made, that made it that made it tricky. And I think it's just that realization that you kind of want to be able to be closer to home. Um, even though I never went back to New Zealand, I wanted to be three or four hours away as opposed to 24 hours away. Um, yeah, so I think it's just the, the family, you know, bring, bring get it closer to family and, and a bit of lifestyle as well. What, what was life like for you when you landed in Australia? So I went back, I went to Sydney uh, and I didn't love it, to be honest. I, I struggled with Sydney at that time. I thought the food scene wasn't great. Um, you know, this is oh, over 10 years ago now. Uh, the food scene was kind of a bit hollow and a bit soulless. Um, the working environments were very different. You know, people didn't work quite as hard as I think they did in, in London, and I, and I kind of struggled with that. So I only lasted about uh, nine, ten months in Sydney before I moved to Melbourne. But, um, yeah, and, and I think on that, I think Sydney's food scene has, has changed you know, dramatically, and now I, I, as a as a proud Melbourneian, I would say that Sydney's food scene right now is probably better than Melbourne's, to be honest. Wow! <laughs> well, tell us about that move to Melbourne. Is what was it about Melbourne, and what was it like for you when you got there? Oh, I think Melbourne's just uh, it's, it's as close as you're going to get to a European city outside of Europe. Um, the food culture when I got to London uh, to Melbourne was fantastic. You know, the community of chefs was incredible, you know, and, and bartenders and, um, you know, the, the, the small hole in the walls and the good cafes and um, it was just it was just vibrant. People were trying different things. Um, people weren't scared to try things. And, you know, the food community is just fantastic in Melbourne. It always kind of has been. So um, I loved it. I absolutely love Melbourne. Where did you get your foot in the door in Melbourne? Uh, I started at a restaurant called Gill's Diner, which, yeah, which I'm sure you've eaten at before. Um, a fantastic little restaurant, uh, you know, bakery attached, um, you know, had free reign pretty much on the menu. Um, and that's kind of where I grew my love for, for baking as well. You know, the bakery, and we're producing some great, great bread for all of, you know, a lot of, you know, really cool spots and, you know, the European and city wine shop and all that. So, um, yeah, so that's where I started at, at Gill's Diner before uh, they sold that restaurant um, and it turned into the to the Italian restaurant that it is now. So I did a bit of a handover with those guys and then and then realised that it was, you know, it was two chefs and a front of house person that brought it. So um, it was pretty um, – it was no space for me there, that was, that's for sure. <laughs> you spent a lot of your career in Melbourne. What's been the real sort of key venues and people that you've worked with? I think uh, – that was definitely, you know, what kicked my career off there. Uh, and then I, I did a few other things. I opened the Entrecot um, next to – in the city there um, and next to where, where Stokehouse was, um, which was a really cool restaurant. Um, but I think that laneways kind of – uh, jinxed or <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen a successful restaurant in that laneway for some reason. Um and then, and then I went and worked for Saint Ali for quite a while, um, and was their executive chef, uh, you know, running the main Saint Ali, and then looking after the food program for all the other spots. So, um, and, and really enjoyed my time there. So, what, what was the role there? Take us through that. 
So I was the executive chef for the company. Uh, obviously, the main role was to make sure that the flagship, the, the South Melbourne Cafe, was was running, and um, that's where I spent most of my time. Um, you know, but that was a you know, and still that that spot was an absolute beast. We'd do you know a thousand covers for breakfast and the weekends. Um, yeah, yeah. So like a, a, a monster, uh, and at a at a really high level for a cafe. Um, and then I had a, a little bit to do with the the Saint Ali's that opened over in Jakarta. Um, and then we looked after we we you know we had acquired auction rooms at at some point near the end of my tenure there, and and just to kind of make sure that that you know all those. It was as much synergy as possible between the cafes. We've had uh, Salvatore Malatesta on the show before. Do you have any stories of what it's like working with him? Sal is like, honestly, uh, once once you're in Sal's team, he's one of the most loyal and and decent human beings I've ever met. I still speak to Sal frequently. Um, but he's, he's the epitome of an entrepreneur. So he's... He's a madman, and I'd say that to his face. Um, he's got a thousand ideas, and his brain goes ten thousand miles an hour. Um, so it's it's pretty it's pretty full on, especially when you're working in one of those roles that you're working closely with him. Um, you know, he he kind of has an idea, and and you need to kind of try and execute it as fast as you can. But um, but yeah, an extremely loyal uh, human being. Um, but yeah, he, he can be, you know, he's a classic entrepreneur where he has a thousand ideas and, and wants you to execute them in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> at the top of the show, you talked about sort of losing your job at the beginning of COVID and, and heading north. Um, tell us what you were doing in Melbourne and, and what that period of time was like for you. How did you feel? Yeah, so I left St. Ali. Um, well, actually, I, I kind of had a, 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 a little... Uh, spat at rehab not a spat i went to rehab from saint ali um and those guys were super supportive through my journey of uh you know of recovery um and i still had a job with them throughout the whole thing uh and then uh once i'd kind of come back and you know, I, was, I was kind of easing back into work after uh you know a couple of months off trying to look after myself i got approached by uh, a big company called Emirates Leisure Retail, which was a subsidiary of the airline. And we had over 100 venues around Australia and New Zealand, mainly based in airports. So I took over their exec chef role and, and kind of the head of food and beverage role, um, which, you know, it was pretty tough to leave St. Ali because they they'd treated me so well through the, you know, my darkest days. Um, but I kind of needed to, you know, get out and, and I was pretty keen to explore some of those big corporate exec chef roles. Um, I've always kind of been always planned in the last, you know, five years of my cooking, actual cooking career. It's like, I need to get off this line. I can't run a pass my whole life. Um, I think it was, you know, for me, I wasn't cut out for, for keep, you know, I didn't want to be in my forties or fifties still kind of running a pass at a restaurant that wasn't, um, something I, I desired to do. So I kind of, you know, actively started looking for big corporate exec chef roles. So I was there for two and a half years before COVID hit. Um, and, a, you know, a really varied role um, that sent me, you know, all over the world uh, and all over the country and all over New Zealand. I'd, you know, I'd do easily 100 flights a year. Um, yeah, you know, it was just always on the road, um, you know, really, you know, I had executive chefs in every state and the exec chef and, 
New Zealand, um, and very varied from small, ca- you know, small cafes to you know, um, we ran the Kitchen by Mike restaurant at Sydney Airport. We ran the Wolfgang Puck restaurant at Sydney Airport. Um, so you know, really varied uh, job. But you know, I was in a, I was in a in a shirt and uh, shirt and suit jacket every day. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty different. Um, what 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 was the sort of biggest or most exciting or interesting gig that you had in in during your time there around the globe? I think the opening. So we we opened a bunch of venues in Auckland Airport uh, in 2020. So we we had about six venues across Auckland Airport. Um, so that that was pretty you know, a really, you know, formidable part of my career was, you know, I had the opportunity to open something like seven restaurants while I was working for uh, Emirates. And I think opening restaurants is a skill in itself, knowing how to design kitchens for, you know, uses. And, and they say you need to do five before you start figuring it out. So, um, <laughs> so I think that was a, a really eye-opening part of my career. But it was it was funny though. People were like, "Oh, you know, you'd see your Instagram. Oh, you're traveling so much. That must be so fun." But there was literally times, you know, and I have a, you know, a lot of family in Auckland. But there was times that I would fly into Auckland Airport on the first flight on Monday morning, and I'd fly out on Friday afternoon, and I'd stay at the airport hotel the whole week, and I wouldn't leave the property. So, <laughs> so people think it's all fun and games. You actually work way harder. Uh, and it looks it looks nice from the outside, but um, yeah, it was pretty pretty full on work. But I, I really enjoyed those openings with such a, a big sort of role and so many people working for you and, and different offerings, you know, like Wolfgang Park or Mike McInerney, which poles apart in regards to food. How, how do you how do you manage that to get those offerings the way they need to be and, and spot on? Uh, it's it's just coming down to building the team. You, you have to kind of employ the right people on the ground to to lead those teams, and then the team under them to support them. And uh, if you don't get it right, it becomes obvious really quickly. Uh, and it's very hard to you know my normal default when I was running other venues is that something goes wrong, you just go in and fix it. Now, if something goes wrong in the other in Perth, and I'm in Melbourne, you can't just drive over there and fix it. So. Um, it's, it's employing the right people, uh, putting them to work and leaving them alone most of the time. So not, not completely. You need to be there to support them. You need to kind of, you know, have all the procedures and checks in place. But if you, if you hire the right person, the best thing you can do is kind of get out of their way in, in, the, in the nicest way possible, if that makes sense. How did you feel in that period of time? You lost your job and, you know, you, you didn't work for another six months. You moved north to where it's sunnier. But how did you feel about your place as a chef in hospitality sort of moving forward, given what was happening around the globe? Uh, the first part of COVID, I struggled massively with. Um, you know, I had a good job. I was happy in my job. I had no intention of leaving. As far as I knew, I was doing a good job uh, and to have that kind of completely ripped away without any, uh, you know, from any repercussion that you've done yourself, right? It's kind of easy to process if you've made a mistake and that gets taken away. But, you know, it was all gone so quickly. Um, not to mention, you know, that uh, that the – I mean, I'm not going to get into politics too much, but I, I did feel like the government didn't handle that particularly well and not – you know, I'm not going to get hung up on vaccines and stuff, but the, the way that the hospitality workforce was treated – was tough, you know, like our workforce was predominantly Nepalese and Filipino 
uh, guys and girls that, you know, were on student visas and, and on casual contracts and to have to tell them that they don't have a job tomorrow and that there's no, there's nothing we can do to help them was tough, you know, really hard. So um, it took a while to process that, to be honest. But, um, you know, we got, we got there in the end and, and you can kind of see why now that there's still a massive issue in, in the industry with labour is because we've burnt so many of these fantastic, hardworking people that they're not going to come back because why would you, you know? You, it's, um, so it was pretty devastating to see that part of COVID um, process it and then, then the realisation that, you know, this isn't going away anytime soon and I'm not going to get a job in Melbourne, like, because there was just no jobs, right? Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we had made the decision pretty quickly just to pack the cars up and go. We were really fortunate. You know, we have, you know, Caitlin's family's all here, so we were able to do that. Um, but it's, you know, it was a pretty crazy six months. You know, it all kind of started kicking off and then the next minute I'm living in the Sunshine Coast. Like, it was... It was pretty crazy to process. So there was a deliberate, you know, decision to not kind of jump into a job. I needed to process it. I needed to take some time off and, um, you know, recalibrate what was going on. And, and that's when the whole kind of content thing kind of came to fruition. Well, let's talk about that sort of moment, you know, when you started Andy Cooks. Like, you these days you look very comfortable in front of a camera, but what was it like originally for you? Yeah, it was incredibly tough. It's... um. It's not natural, I don't think, to, for anyone to, to, to talk to a camera. I think it's easier now because it, than it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. You know, there isn't a huge – when I started, there wasn't a huge production crew. It was just me and a, and a camera and a tripod. Um, but, but, but I think the hardest part is that when you start putting yourself out there online, you know, the criticisms that you get and um, – you know, I'm a big fan of food from all over the world. Um, and then when people kind of go after you and say, oh, you haven't done that right, uh, it's, it can get a little bit upsetting. You, you kind of work through it because um, the last thing I want to do is upset or insult any culture or their food. I want to represent it as best as I can. Um, but, but there's, you know, you look at like lasagna, there's, there's, there's hundreds of recipes of lasagna and everyone's not on makes it right and None of them are wrong, and they're all delicious. So, um, you know, it, it, that that was probably harder to, to work through, and then you kind of realise that if you've done your due diligence, um, you do the best you can with the ingredients that you have at hand, and, and you, you you mean, you know, genuinely behind it, then, then that's all you can kind of do. Tell us a little bit about your food as a chef. What, do you have a dish or two that exemplifies sort of what your cooking was like before you had this shift? I think I struggled with my style for a long time. I think growing um, up as a chef in London, I, I always thought that um, that the only way to be a successful chef was if you did fine dining, degustation menus that, you know, had 10,000 components and took Half a half a half a week to prep, um, and it wasn't until my you know my into my thirties that I realised you can be a good chef and um, just cook delicious food that uh, that people you know want to eat and can share. And I think you know often chefs get caught up and end up cooking food for their chef mates as opposed for the public. Um, so once I realised I should just probably cook what I want to cook, and and that is usually. 
you know, like a slow roast lamb shoulder with, you know, a nice, you know, like a tomato salad or, or maybe some roast potatoes or something like that and just put your heart and soul into making that as good as you can. Um, you know, it really kind of changed my life as a cook because it was like, all right, this, this food's good. It's tasty. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, you know, be proud of it. So, um, yeah, I, I think that kind of sharing style, um, for for lack of a better term, almost kind of Ottolingi style of salads and, um, you know, that's the stuff that I love and that's what I cook uh, when I'm cooking for my friends and family. So. Let's talk about the sort of food that you cook. You said you had to get a handle on sort of doing the home cooking, but uh, how would you describe the food that you cook now for, for what you do with Andy Cooks? Um, it, it's... It's trying to inspire people uh, to cook better food at home that's achievable. So I don't try and post stuff that's unachievable. Sometimes that might be a bit more advanced for the average home cook, but you know I try and just just do stuff that's approachable and that um, that you know that most of my audience can have access to those ingredients. So um, you know most of my audiences in Australia and the US. We've, pretty much got very similar access to ingredients so it, it's just trying to keep within those boundaries and and not get too not get too crazy with it and, and inspire people just to cook something different or answer that famous question that everyone asks at 4 30 was what's for dinner <laughs> <laughs> this sort of shift you know that you've had in your career from professional chef to um sharing food for people to view what has it changed your views on the power of food and the way that you view food as well? Yeah, I, I think it has. I think it's um, it, it de- definitely, I think we don't understand food culture very well down here in this part of the world. Um, and I think there's a lot of cultures, um, you know, India, Pakistan, you know, Italy, the Spanish, who, who have a much better and <clears throat> healthier relationship with food. Um and they take the time to stop, enjoy the simple things and, you know, and talk about food. And, and that's why they're so passionate and that's why they kind of get in the comments, you know, um, you know, and, and argue their points. But, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, when we talk about food culture here in this part of the world, it's, it's vastly different to what food culture is in, in a lot of the world where it is – um, it's far more cherished uh, and and far more respected, and um, whereas we're only we're only young, aren't we down here? So we kind of don't quite have that history. You mentioned the research involved in dishes, and you're learning all the time, by the sounds of it, as well. Before you're doing the, uh, these videos to sort of deliver the best thing that you can. What, what's been the best sort of dish or learnings that you've had along the way? I I'm, I think uh, I think just the understanding that uh, in most cultures and in most you know, really famous, you know, origins dishes, that there is no, there's still no right or wrong way. Um, we just recently travelled to to Vietnam to to really try and go deep on bar me, and the the truth is about bar me, it was a bunch of you know Cantonese style roast pork and roast meat shops that thought, well, actually, I'm just going to get one of these baguettes that the French put over and, and sell this as well. And, and there's there's so many versions of a bar me. It's not just cold cuts and pate, um, you, you know, and and I think there's a, there's a real misunderstanding often uh, about, you know, all these famous dishes that we know that we think uh, that's how it's done. But when you actually go to these places, it's often quite different to how it's been replicated here. And, and that's just as a result of, you know, migrants coming to countries, 
not having access to the same ingredients but wanting to cook their food so they kind of just do the best they can with the ingredients they can get their hands on. You mentioned uh, the trip to Vietnam. This this thing that you're doing now is taking you all over the world. What's been the sort of uh, real ex- the best experience that you've had traveling off the back of this? We were in um, the Philippines not long ago as well uh, and we went to a place called Cavite which was it's about 45 minutes out of Manila. Um, and we ate at a, it was at, a, at a restaurant in loose terms called uh, Restaurant Da Quetina A. Uh, and it was this, uh, this mother and son who had this restaurant basically in their backyard. Um, and they were, they were, they were you know, a, I guess you could call them well off as far as, um, you know, as, as Filipinos. Um, but they, and I said to them, why do you have this restaurant? Like they clearly didn't have to do it. And, and they said, we want to cook this food, this traditional food for the kids who, A, don't have access to it and can't afford it, and, and B, so they understand our history and our history of food. You know, and that kind of ties in really well to what we were just talking about with food culture, that this mother and son were, were cooking this food for the school kids every day, not, not to make money, not for any other reason, but then to preserve their culture. Um, and it was, of, of course, it was like, incredible meal you know like um you know and and unbelievably unusual you know like stuff that you just would never have thought of cooking and you know like a you know a dish made with papaya and and a cow's pancreas and a lot of people were thinking that sounds disgusting i can assure you it was absolutely delicious (laughs) well you've you've had the most unusual and incredible shift in your career what do you love about what you do uh I think it's those experiences, you know, and, and building a community of, of like-minded, passionate, you know, um, foodies. I hate that word, but I guess it's, it is what it is um, from all over the world, you know, and I've met all these incredible people and and very, very fortunate that I now get to travel the world. And, you know, I, I kind of just do what I love now and I, I research food, I cook food, I film it and I, and I put it online and, and it usually gets received well. Um, so I, I think it's just it's so different from where I thought my life and career would go, um, but but very much enjoyed and you know, very thankful and, and feel very fortunate. Well, Andy, it's an absolute honour to hear just a part of your story today and deep in the weeds. Um, please keep in touch. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more from you, um, but we'll catch up again soon. Thanks very much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au and be well.